Right, should we get started then? So what we're going to do first of all... Oh, oh come on, Mike. Oh, no, are, you, no, no, no. are you releasing no. the bloopers as well? Oh, yeah, yeah. I know, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Absolutely. That was the missus. She's not even She's not even at home tonight and she's still, uh, still phoning me. Apologies. Right, we'll get started. So this is episode eight of uh, More Than A Job on Anchor FM. My name's Mike Bradford. I'm Jay Ollerton. And I'm Daniel Bull. And tonight we are joined by two fantastic guests. We've got our first ever NQT on the podcast who has performed outstandingly well in her first year of teaching. A fluent linguist who specialises in French, having lived in France herself and taught English to French natives. A very reflective practitioner who has raised aspiration of many of her students in just a short time. Welcome to Natalie Taylor. Welcome, Natalie. Hello, Mike. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. We're looking forward to speaking to you tonight. And we're also joined this week by Abby Bayford. Abby is the Director of Institute of the Academy Transformation Trust. And prior to this, she was Vice Principal at Bristol Hall Academy based in the West Midlands. Abby has been a qualified teacher for 14 years, working in and supporting a range of schools in the Midlands. In this time, Abby has undertaken the role of SENCO, Lead Practitioner, Assistant Principal, and most recently, Vice Principal in charge of leadership and management and quality of education. During this time, Abby has been part of leadership teams that have secured outstanding and good Ofsted judgments. Welcome to you, Abby Bayford, for tonight's episode. Wow, what an introduction. It's like this is your life, isn't it? Hello, thank you for having me. Well, listen, it's, it's, it, both of you have got great CVs in your careers and, and you're really welcome on our podcast tonight. Abby, we're going to start the questions with you. You are a very popular person to follow on Twitter and you're always at the forefront of ideas and innovation. Your current job at the Director of Institute at the Academy Transformation Trust has, has clearly led to a successful career. Can you tell us a little bit more about your role and your passion for teaching and education? I will. So I'm just going to start by saying that what you see on Twitter is probably a sliver of what happens in real life. And our whole Institute of People Development offer is very much a grassroots movement that's been co-constructed by lots of amazing people. So I can't take credit for all of it. I am just a platform for it. In terms of what I do, so we're a national trust of 21 academies. We're quite geographically dispersed, to say the least. And I lead on people development for just shy of 2,000 colleagues serving 13,500 students. And one of the challenges is the fact that we serve 10 local authority areas. So, you know, a real driver for us is ensuring that we've got an equitable people development model because, you know, the quality of external support spanning over these 10 local authority areas is inconsistent. So we were really keen to ensure that needs were met consistently through a a map-wide offer. So that's essentially what I do. I resource people development. I plan it um, where I have the expertise, or if not, I will recruit some of our amazing colleagues within or outside of our trust to facilitate some of that training. But it's very much about harnessing the expertise of everyone in the trust. Everyone is novice and everyone is expert in some way. We're going to talk a little bit later on about early careers, teaching obviously with having Natalie on with us, who's been so successful 
in her early career. What's the best advice that you've uh, ever been given as a senior leader? And secondly, what do you think is the most successful criteria for a senior leader? Such a good question. I'm going to start with the advice first. I've had a lot of good advice, but I'd say probably the most powerful piece of advice I've had, and this is quite recently actually, was from Johnny Upley, who said that we need to care as much about the people, the young people in the school down the road as we do about the young people in our own schools. And that for me, just pretty much sums up what it means to be an ethical leader. And it really resonated because, you know, lots of things that happen in our sector create a culture of competitive bidding, whether it's a designation, a league table, an offset grading on the you know, the fence outside your school and so on. It just creates this, this really competitive landscape that doesn't sit well with me. You know, that was a really great piece of advice and I think it's something we should all hold ourselves to account to. In terms of qualities, probably say the biggest and best quality a leader can have, any teacher actually, uh, any educator, is vulnerability. So to quote my absolute hero, Brené Brown, she says vulnerability is the birthplace of innovation. And I really think that, you know, vulnerability kind of dances an intimate dance with failure. And you just have to accept that failure is part and parcel of being a leader. And you can't innovate if you're scared of getting things wrong. So as a leader, you've got to be willing to do that. You've got to encourage staff to actively innovate and you know really take those moments where things haven't worked out well and it, I think it's how we respond to that failure that sets the precedent for innovation in the future so if we really take stuff and think okay we tried it didn't work in the way that we hoped but what have we learned from this you're creating a really healthy and strong culture in a school then. Natalie what's been the best piece of advice you've been given in your career to date then and what advice would you give to yourself if you could go back in September? A statement that I quite like to live by is that comparison is the thief of joy. And I think that's very true with regards to kind of what Abby was saying, is that especially when you're a new careers teacher, you obviously you haven't had a lot of experience, even less so, obviously, if you qualified the year that I did when we had six months training as opposed to a full year. You do have the constant comparison, you know, with teachers your age or with general staff of the Am I doing am I doing things right? Am I working as much as other people are working? If they're doing this, does that mean that I need to be? And that can be really, really tiring for one. And it can mean that that sort of self-doubt that constantly creeps in can it can really bring you down. And I am speaking from experience, obviously, when I say all of this, my advice would be comparison is healthy if it's used to move you forward if it's used in the sense that you're looking at what other people are doing you're taking on a board advice and like Abby was saying you're innovating your own practice but that it shouldn't be used to make you feel rubbish about yourself and feel that what you're doing at your stage in your career is not good enough I think then obviously it becomes quite quite damaging fantastic and this seamlessly links into our next bit talking to Abby about your your first book, A Letter to My NQT Self, which, as at the time of recording, has just gone to print today, hasn't it? Which, of course, people can pre-order on Amazon. We'll make sure there's a link when we when we put the, the podcast information out on Twitter. Abby, I was very, very lucky to get an early preview of the book, so thank you for that. And you've dedicated it to all early career teachers. You've said you want to remind them they're never alone, which is you know fantastic. That's why we've got Natalie here as well today, so we can, we can talk to an NQT. 
Can you just talk to us about the inspiration behind the book and what started your journey to put this book together? It came about when the ECF materials were released early. We'd already had a conversation about the fact that our NQTs and RQTs had had more than a raw deal training in the middle of lockdown, not having in-class experience or very limited. And so we wanted to put together a, a leadership development pathway for them anyway. And then fortunately, the ECF materials were pre-released that so we started to look at those. And so we started to write a leadership development pathway and it was largely designed around do's and don'ts so colleagues who were writing it we started talking to each other about things we found particularly challenging in our first few years of teaching things we wish we'd had things we wish we'd known it enabled kind of a retrospective discussion really it was in that conversation about struggles we started to say okay so if we want, you know, why didn't we? Why, why are we only now finding these things out about each other 14 years into teaching? Why, have, why do we never talk about that, that time? And, you know, I'm as guilty as everybody else. It's like a forgotten past. And I think, gosh, some of those aspects were traumatic. I'm glad it's over. And who, I kind of know what I'm doing now, although I'm always learning. But actually, if we're wanting our early career teachers to feel psychologically safe enough to be able to say to us, I'm really struggling with this. I haven't got a clue how to go about it. Help me. We need to role model that that level of humility as well. So that's where the idea of the, the blog was born. We said, actually, why don't we capture these conversations through letters to our NQT self? You know, we didn't think anyone read, would read them other than our early career teachers. But we thought, well, let's write them for them, you know, to stimulate a conversation about what they might need by putting ourselves as vulnerable really to go back to that quality and then we thought actually let's just take a gamble and put it on our website and promote it on Twitter and it really started to gain some traction and then friends of ours you know like Emma Turner, Zoe Enza and so on said we'll write one for you and so I started to think do you know what there's an audience for this why don't we publish it so that all early career teachers can read it and hopefully if nothing else, you know, even if they don't take wisdom from it, feel safe enough to have the conversations with their mentor about what they need specifically and use it as a bit of stimulus. I thought about, okay, so, you know, how could this book do something that's really great for everyone in the sector? So although the audience is early career teachers, what can we do for everyone in the education sector in any kind of role? Because it's tough for everyone right now. And so we were really attracted to the idea of supporting education education support because they are the UK's only charity providing mental health and well-being support services to all staff working in education not just teachers so we made the decision to you know we talked about what our royalties would be with John Cat, and we made the decision to donate our royalties to them. Thanks, Abby. You were in charge of the SLT chat on Twitter it's a Sunday back in September or time or so. And I remember exchanging some tweets with you about this and about the letter to the NQT self. I'll come back to Natalie because I, I shared that with Natalie. Do you started putting it on the website, Abby? And I remember in our in the Twitter exchange when you were hosting SLT chat, we were talking about what if an NQT feeds back to SLT? And the lessons we could learn from that. So you challenged me to do that, Abby. You said, "Oh, well, let's do that." Now we only had n. We only got one NQT this year, which is Natalie. Natalie, I'm going to come back to you here now. Can you give us four some advice 
that we as members of SLT should be aware of when inducting early careers teachers into school. What mistakes have we made or what things could we do better to to support ECTs? I would say one thing that we've kind of spoken about before would definitely be, and not through anyone's fault, but kind of just like you say, because you've been teaching a long time and for you things maybe seem so obvious. But I think it's about really taking it back to basics and thinking, imagine you are someone who is going into a school for the first time as a professional teacher, as an educator. What things as basic as they may may be, like we've talked about many times, like even dimming the lights that I didn't know how to do for about four months. What are the little things that you might not know how to do? Like this is, so for technology wise, thinking about, I didn't know how to put money on an account to go to the canteen to buy lunch. I didn't know that for a long, long time. Like even things like how do you call on um, SLT for support in lessons, as opposed to always going for your head departments. And then I'd say even like little things, like even, even today, actually, I went to laminate some things and I don't, I didn't know where to get laminating sheets from so I had to go and ask and I always get but you know we're what we're in April nearly and I still don't know these little things and so it's all about kind of going like I say going back to basics and really thinking imagine you're going in this building as a person who doesn't know anything about it they don't even know how to turn the computer on you've got to really imagine not not baby them not you know but but really imagine it from their sort of thing and think right what would I not know how to do if I were in their sort of position and I'd say along with that you've got to really be aware that for someone you know most early careers teachers majority very young you're a newbie in a school where everyone knows each other or the majority do there are friendship groups and you're coming in as someone who has finished your career has gone to different schools and you're there on your own and really ensuring that you're supporting them in terms of come to me for any advice or support I was even thinking today for example like I would love one time um when I have a free for example like shadowing one of you when you're on call I know that might seem mad but I would really think that would be really valuable experience so I've gone off on a bit of a tangent but I would sum that summarize that by saying think about the little things and I sent down a list about all the little things that I thought about and I thought actually all of those things I didn't know how to do of which one even came up today that is what I would say you know, we, we have had these discussions, haven't we, all the time. Natalie, do you think it's been harder for you? And I know it's, it's impossible to compare, but you're the only NQT at the school. So you are a lone ranger. You haven't got a team of other people experiencing the same who'll discuss the same. I would definitely say yes. And it comes back to the need for, and I, I kind of hate the phrase really, like a support network, but the need for people to essentially just speak to about how you feeling and days when things don't go don't go that well which happen very very often I think being on your own as an NQT is very very hard because like I say especially if you're someone like myself who is always striving for perfection and falling short of it you do question yourself a lot about how well you're doing but I would say for me it's been really nice also to speak to people who aren't NQTs because I feel sometimes like the NQT and the RQT bracket we kind of get forced together like come on guys you're young stay together support each other and actually sometimes what us NQTs need is someone with experience and someone who's been there for a long time and who can say look I've been here for a long time and even now it's still hard for me so it's normal it's normal at your stage because I think sometimes you know when you're drawing on experience from people who yes are in the same situation and who can empathize but who are also sometimes struggling that's not necessarily always what you need sometimes you want a bit of support in terms of someone who's got more experience someone who can give you an alternative point of view because they've seen more things and that's what i think sometimes is really really useful for nqt so 
to answer your question, it has been, it has had, it has had moments of kind of loneliness, but I'm really pleased that in the, the SLT team is, is so strong and so lovely. And you all, you guys have all been, you know, so lovely to me. And I've really appreciated being able to draw on that support and those years of experience to, to help me in my career and to reassure me. That's what I've found really, really useful. Yeah, I, I agree with what Natalie's saying. It, it's a precarious balancing act, actually. So you want to be able to create, in Natalie's words, a support network of maybe colleagues who are at the same point in their career and can say, yeah, I, you know, I feel this way as well. But equally, you don't want to be made to feel completely different to all of the other teachers either. And, you know, we are in danger of doing that if we're not careful. I was, think, I was comparing it to like a differentiated worksheet. You don't want that as an early career teacher you don't want diluted PD because you're early you know you're new to teaching you want the same high quality PD that everyone else is getting but in the same way that you might do with a student where it's new to them you might just explain it in more detail or you might have a follow-up saying is there anything that didn't make sense do you want me you know do you want me to show you what that looks like in the classroom and so on I think we've got to make sure that we don't dilute our expectations of people who are highly competent joining our profession as well. Abby saying as well you really do feel like actually you know people are trying to be nice and they're trying to be supportive but actually the way it comes across sometimes is it feels like you don't actually have an identity you are you are termed in the school as the NQT you're not the new member of staff you are the NQT and it feels like you are classified and, and termed by the lack of like your essential your lack of experience the fact that you're a, you're a newbie to the the teaching game as it were and sometimes I feel like I mean I don't take it personally but I do feel like sometimes it's a bit like I do have a name I do have an identity and just because I've been here and I'm new doesn't mean that I'm not I haven't got as much experience as any of you guys but it doesn't mean that I'm not a competent professional. I was just going to say what it reminds me of you know you've passed your text no one wants to put that P plate on their car. Did anyone put that P plate on their car? Absolutely not. Because you have worked damn hard to be able to drive and feel like everybody else. You're not putting that P plate on. But if you're not careful, what you're asking an early career teacher to do, if you keep signposting that they're an early career teacher, making them do everything different on separate PD pathways, and, you know, differentiated training. You're just essentially putting a big P plate around their neck and asking them to wear it for two years. So we do need to be really careful. Just going back to your book, Abby, just what, what you and Natalie and James have been saying. Like in a way, this is the essence of your book because I, I, I noticed, and I, I, Dan, Dan was very kind just to, to let me have a look at the, the copy that you'd sent him. A lot of those letters are from current head teachers, aren't they? Writing back to themselves as NQTs. And this is the point, is we're talking to you, Natalie, as an NQT. You might be a future head teacher in 15 years. But I was just going back to the book, Abby, and, and you, you kind of got the idea about writing it because of your observed lesson on a midsummer's night's dream. And you mentioned that in your letter back to yourself. What were the key themes that were coming out of the letters? If you could bring it down to three or four really key themes that people were saying to themselves, what would you say they were? I think one is around this idea that a quality lesson is not about its decoration. So when I trained, there was an absolute obsession with, it was almost like a coercive relationship, like what the observer liked to see. 
it was almost like cooking a meal in a restaurant or they really like this meal or when Ofsted come, oh, they really like to see this, make sure you shoehorn this into your lesson. So it, it very much felt like a teaching by numbers approach rather than something that's really meaningful, meaningful and focused on what do the children need to learn and how am I going to help them to learn it. It really was not that simple when I trained. I hope it's a bit better than that now. But that was definitely a theme, this kind of challenging, this fixation around everything that looks pretty. Also, behaviour management. So this idea of, I don't know if you've heard this phrase, I think lots of people have, they're all right for me. Really? Have they always been all right for you? No. And, and this kind of lack of honesty sometimes from established teachers who, I don't know whether there's an ego at play or whether it was just so grim getting to the point of fostering a really positive relationship with this child that they, you know, they get like post-traumatic stress and they can't go back there. But there's like a, a refusal for established teachers to say, yeah, I taught him or her in year seven and it was horrendous. And I used to have to like go and sit in a dark room Friday lunchtime, prepare myself for period five. It's like we just stop having those conversations with people and then obsession with learning environments now I really do believe that we have to ensure that our learning environments are places where children want to learn but they need to be purposeful learning environments so mine look like the chronicles of Narnia when I created my classroom as an NQT because I really felt it meant something if I didn't have trees hanging from the ceiling and I'm not being I'm not using hyperbole here genuinely I had fake trees hanging from the ceiling and it set off the fire alarm one night it's almost like you know if your classroom didn't look beautiful and creative again that was a reflection on the quality of your teaching and you know I was told not to do GCSE art for a reason so my poor mother whilst I was training used to spend Saturday nights making things for my classroom and no parents should have to go through that. Natalie just going back to that first one that, that Abby mentioned what do you think has been your most over-the-top lesson that you've prepared as an NQT? Well, this is really difficult and I've been thinking about this for a long time because for me, obviously, I've had the difficulty of all of the kind of the showstopper activities you can do in MFL. We can't do any of them because the kids need to essentially move around. A lot of them are speaking based. So because we haven't been able to move around, it has put a kind of a bit of a spanner in the works there. I've seen a lot of good teaching, but kind of since I've since I've done my training, the focus, thank God, from Abby's experience has walked for me anyway. It was a lot more on. You're not there to impress the person with the clipboard. You are there to help these kids learn. What is the objective plan backwards and um, from that? How are you going to get them there? So mine was a lot less kind of like the singing all, singing all dancing and more just on the content, which suits me because I'm not that creative and I don't like all that sort of cutting and sticking stuff. If I don't have to do that, I won't. I'm going to be quite honest. But I would say um, a couple that kind of stand out to me, I've had two one in year seven and one in year eight. The most recent one, the year eight one, we were doing about um, music. And I really think it's important in MFL to talk to them about the cultural aspect, the fact that this is not a vacuum language. We're not just hearing, you know, in the school, learn. It, it's a real context spoken by real people all over the world, French particularly, every continent in the world. And I was speaking to them about um, music and they were listening to pieces of music. We were drawing on what they've been covering in music as well in terms of they were talking about tempo and all this. So... It was a very cultural lesson for a change rather than grammatically based. I made them listen to loads of different artists, particularly French artists that I listen to. So quite young stuff. 
and they absolutely loved it and what was actually it wasn't whilst I was in the classroom you know the feedback and the stuff they were saying was absolutely fabulous but it wasn't that it was actually they'd won a couple of prizes and I left the classroom and they'd all gone to lunch and I went out and I went into the cafe and then I went outside and basically all of my students had gone onto Spotify or they had downloaded from the iTunes store the French all the French songs. They were all going, oh, miss, actually, I quite, I'd quite listen to that. I quite like that one. And I was like, oh, I'm really glad because that's the stuff I listen to. And I went outside and they were like, miss, this is really good. This is really good. And for me, that was a little thing. It's not a massive showstopper or anything. That's something that they really, really enjoyed and they really got something from. And they were like, oh, I'd listen to loads of this all the time. And now, since then, they've been in my lesson and they've said, oh, I've listened to his whole album now. I really like the most recent one and it's been a really good point of discussion so that is my showstopper lesson it's not that amazing but to me it was really 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 rewarding Natalie that's music to my ears and it makes me realize how far we've come as a sector actually in the 14 years and why the ECF is so important but again just when I trained it was all about 20 minute segments in lessons rapid progress it was called god forbid that a child did not acquire some new knowledge or a new skill within 20 minutes because you were not outstanding and you know when Ofsted would come you know we would have to show progress in 20 minute intervals and I'll never forget you know in, in a bid to be snazzy they couldn't write that desk we were going to do it on the wall because that was impressive so we'd stuck the writing on big a3 paper on the wall and they were writing their story had no impact the fact that it was on a wall they in fact it was really awkward and children were kind of leaning against the wall and awkwardly writing and I'd run out of wall space so we used the windows and as Ofsted came in and I was like show me your progress the window flew open and their work fell on the car park and they shouted our progress and I had to then send children out onto the car park to collect the work to prove I was outstanding I mean it worked <laughs> but there was no learning that took place that day at all my, mine's maybe not as good as yours my story from when I was an NQT I obviously trained as a, as a PE teacher and I had to teach a dance lesson I, I don't know they, they obviously saw me coming and they, they made me teach a dance lesson I remember buying some newspapers and the, the idea was for the kids to find keywords. I mean, like you're going to do that in dance anyway, but that was the stupidity of, you know, trying to show progress in a lesson in, in a dance lesson. Find keywords from newspapers. Some kid came running over with page three and I'd, I'd forgotten to take the page three. I'd bought the Daily Mirror, I think. Back in the day, this is, it shows how old I am. And he came running out with page three. So I think we've all got these stories, haven't we, of, uh, of nightmare observed lessons when we try and go over the top. Abby, my induction process 10 years ago was very good. I was very, very well supported, but I only remember doing things. So, for example, one week we got to speak to the school nurse. Then we got to speak, we got spoken to by the behaviour mentors who just told us what they did. Then one week the heads of year showed us their office. I don't remember discussing research, ideas, pedagogy, so my question is, what are the biggest mistakes that schools are making when they induct their early careers teachers? I think one of the key mistakes they make is presuming that everyone has the same starting point. So, for example, when I started as an NQT, I'd done my PGCE and my second placement was at the school where I got my NQT post. So 
that was really fortunate because I knew who the staff were, you know, I knew the behaviour policy and, and all of that kind of stuff. Yet I sit through, it was called whole school issues every week and have the training on it um, because I was part of the MQT cohort. So I would just have the same training as everyone else. And, you know, that, that will be applicable to lots of MQTs across the country. But also, you know, um, I know a lot of TAs who've taught in a school for you know a long time and then have decided to make the transition into teaching and they are probably sometimes more pedagogically aware than the person leading the training because they've had so much experience in the classroom they know the children so well they've seen probably so many more lessons than us because they're in a really advantageous place supporting students potentially different subject areas. So I think we just need to be really nuanced. And that's the role of the mentor. The mentor needs to be able to have a conversation with whoever the induction lead is, if they're different and say, this is the starting point for my NQT. We've had a conversation, you know, we've had a look at the teaching standards, or, you know, the ECF now, this is where they feel really strong. This is where they feel they would need more time and have a more bespoke plan. So I think what, that's one of the key things that we sometimes get wrong. I think as well, we need to nurture insights and provide support and challenge. So coaching is pivotal to this work. Um, so sometimes a lot of the induction process is around like a knowledge, I call it a knowledge dump. So here's everything we want you to know on this topic, go away and do something with it as if it's that easy. But you need the opportunity to sense make and think, okay, how does this apply to my phase or my subject discipline? Does it? Because not everything does. Um, how does it need to be adapted for my context, subject and students? Let me have a little play around with it and a go. Can I get some feedback through coaching and so on? So sometimes our coaching approaches, mentors can be far too holistic where we look at the lesson as a whole rather than allowing NQTs to say, I am really working on applying this from my training. Can you please just give me feedback on this one specific thing? And I know that's challenging because you've got to sign off standards and so on, but where we can be more flexible and enable our early career teachers to drive their own development as well. You know, they, they know a lot about what they need. I think that would be better. Natalie, to throw it back to you, I know it's been difficult because, as you say, the ITT year was, was broken up by COVID. Your NQT year has been broken up because you have had experience of working in education prior to your NQT post which sort of links into what Abby said. Natalie what do you think has been the most important or is the most important part of the whole induction period and I'll, I'll include the ITT year as well as the NQT year? I would say that the most important part of um, well, yeah like you say the ITT year that obviously I had or now is 100% building relationships with your mentors, your colleagues, your coaches however they're going to term that, you know, because I had experience in my T ITT year of two completely different schools, one in which couldn't have gone any better, the most amazing department, really treated me like a professional, didn't treat me like a student or a baby who was kind of like put into the corner and like, oh, go and see the student, she might need some help with this, were just so inclusive, really treated me as an individual, absolutely amazing. And I had the complete opposite experience of left in the corner, left to your own devices, heavily critiqued on things, but never shown how to improve, not giving real reasons why I wasn't hitting like an outstanding for a certain standard. So I would say the most important part for whenever you've got 
new new trainee teachers at ITT NQT level is ensuring that you remember they are a human being and that they need to build relationships and that they're coming in as a newbie into a situation where people all know each other and that that support network needs to be formed in whatever way through building you know relationships with their mentors which the mentors need to invest in themselves as well to ensure that that happens because like I say I think teaching sometimes it can be a very lonely profession every teacher has some some skill set to bring you and that's the most important thing for me. Abby what are your thoughts on the uh, the updated early careers framework so for example the, the DfE is funding it for, for two years five percent away from the classroom dedicated mentors and funding to cover the mentors. Do you think it's enough? And is it a step in the right direction or, or do you think it can go even further? I don't think they'll ever feel like there's enough time because there's always so much to learn. And if you look at the ECF in its entirety to, to do that well, well, you could be working on it until you retire, couldn't you essentially? So, but it, it is a welcome step. And I think it is crucial that we protect that time because the learning curve is so steep in those first two years. So. I think it's more about what the PD offer looks like as a whole for early career teachers. So if learning only happens in that 5% of time, then it, it isn't enough, is it? Whereas if we create a culture where, if, for example, the early career teachers teaching alone, they can use deliberate practice, reflect, share with their mentor what they've tried, how it's gone, then every single thing they're doing is part of their learning. And I absolutely love, in Tom Sherrington's walkthrough uh, manual, the first one, he's got a walkthrough on unseen observations. And that really inspired me in terms of how we designed, well, all coaching, but our ECF in particular. I can see Dan's having a look at it now. Um, I can't tell you which page it is, but it's, it's towards the back if you have a look. But what's really nice about it is it role models, the mental models that expert teachers have. So the kinds of things that they think about when they are evaluating their own lessons. So, you know, when we teach we are drawing on a library of experiences. We're drawing on the last time we taught it and what went well and when the kids didn't get it. And we're already preempting that with the next class and thinking, okay, before I get to that stuck point, I'm going to put in some extra scaffolding and support in order to kind of mitigate that challenge. Obviously, early career teachers can't have that because they haven't got that library of, of successes and failures. But what they can do is start building that if they are reflective from the start. Abby, if one of us were to come and work, or an early career teacher were to come and work for ATT, the Academy Transformation Trust, what does their early careers programme look like? Okay, so I'm going to tell you what it looks like now, but it will obviously be more bolstered from September because we've got like the full set of materials for the ECF and so on. So what we've done is we used the pre-release um, ECF materials and we wrote a leadership development pathway for all our early career teachers. So what we didn't want, it, it was it's a combined pathway for all early career teachers across our 21 academies, year one and year two, because what we didn't want is a situation where, like Natalie, if we've got a colleague who's the only early career teacher in their academy, they don't get the opportunity to network with others. So we have seven webinars across the year where we explore the content, but then it's made bespoke through the mental relationship. So they have a pre-task where they look at it and they sort of evaluate what that means to them, what they need to get out of it. 
we have the, the knowledge input and then we have post-task that guides the mentor conversations and the work that they do together. So the NQT and RQT take autonomy and say, OK, this is what I really want to do with this. This will really help me develop my practice. And then the mentor will support them with that. We also have monthly teach meets and they are completely owned by the early career teachers. So all I do is I open up the team's room and then I leave and they'll have like a coffee together. But it's just a chance for them to talk to each other and they completely own it. And, you know, unless they want to, they don't have to come back to me and share what they've been talking about. But that's been a really welcomed part of our offer by our early career teachers because we're missing aren't we we're all missing that that coffee with a colleague and having a chat so it's it's plugging that gap to some extent there are things as well that the ECF doesn't cover like early child development you know for us that's just such a crucial part of training irrespective of whether you're secondary or primary you need to have a knowledge about child language acquisition how to teach early reading and so on so you know we've also built into our program things that we think perhaps are missing from the ECF as well. Thank you for that we've talked a lot about obviously early career teaching but what should we be doing to develop teachers at all stages of their career, Abby? And actually, Natalie, after Abby's answered, I'll ask you the same question as well, because you're on that pathway. And then a second question for you both. What do we, you think we need to do to stop teachers actually leaving the profession in itself? Yeah, well, there's definitely no silver bullets. I think if there was, none of us would have this problem in our schools. But I'd say that I'll start with what I think people need and then I'll talk about what I think we can do as leaders second I think the talent development strategy that you have within your trust or your school is really important so although fast track programs and so on can be really well meaning they can also really affect the culture in your school if you're trying to um promote this culture that everyone has talents and expertise that can be harnessed and then we all have areas for development creating a hierarchical model can be really demotivating to colleagues so your people development offer needs to be partly driven by individual colleagues around okay you know what is it I really want to work on in the classroom or you know within my leadership role and then what time do I have available to me what support what challenge can you offer me to help me to get there so I think you know you need a more individualized approach to that and then as leaders we need to make sure that um, nothing gets in the way of really great teaching so if I reflect on the most frustrating moments in my career it's because I've been asked to do something that has absolutely no bearing on making teaching better for children and and that applies to everyone in education so we're really clear at ACT that whether you are HR, estate, IT, finance your role is to mobilize teacher agency to make that edge between teaching children and and the community better what can demotivate people is if they feel they're doing a task and they can't see its relevance to that thing so as leaders we need to be really clear what that relevance is and if we can't communicate that relevance then we've got to be really honest with ourselves and say well is this a worthwhile endeavor or are we trying to appease someone 
and um and also having an instead of model as leaders so if we are introducing something new what needs to go if we're saying that people need to prioritize this everyone's working to full capacity so if we're suddenly now saying that this is very important to us as a school what are we giving staff permission to stop doing in order to make room for that which can be really difficult to do sometimes um and it depends where you are in your school's journey because i fully recognize if maybe you're not well i'll be really stereotypical now but maybe if you are an ri school is everyone yet working to their full capacity? Maybe not. So you might need to raise the bar. But when you're confident that staff are working hard, then you really need to think quite carefully about what you are introducing that is new and clearly communicating its relevance. Natalie, over to you then. To keep you in the career post this five years, what is it then that we should be doing to develop you? What are you looking for? opportunities to to continually improve being able to access and have funding obviously for uh, CPD relevant CPD um, and have that kind of supported by your head of department or other people that maybe could suggest oh I think this would be good for you because especially when you're starting out sometimes obviously I can always look for stuff in MFL but um, maybe more generally it would be nice to kind of have like a suggestion from other people of this might be quite a good one I've done this one or I've done similar I think in terms of I would say I've talked a lot about support and I'm kind conscious of the fact that I sound like a bit of a broken record but I would say in terms of this support teachers when they make decisions if they are following the school policy and they have taken a decision with regards to students in their class they need the support from other teachers around them to back them up and to know that they are not alone in those like I say we need to eliminate this idea of teaching being a very lonely profession at times and I would also say get away from telling teachers to this this whole work-life balance that we hear so much speak of stop telling us to meditate or do this or download the, the headspace app think of strategies that will actually help us to calm down to feel less stressed for example collaborative planning stop telling us once we're really stressed just go and meditate for five minutes you'll be all right it doesn't work it doesn't help that's not a work-life balance that's just you've got to the end of the road now you're really at the end of the tether and you're thinking should I carry on with this and then you're going just try this little thing and that's not what we want and in a school I taught like last year they had a room that you could go to to literally a chair and you could just sit on this chair and it was a massage chair and you could just go pop there for five minutes if you're fit if things are getting a bit too much and this was what they were promoting is like their culture of work-life balance and all this all the teachers were leaving at half six seven o'clock at night and I just thought it was ridiculous so I would say collaborative planning as a department to reduce workload, actual strategies that really do reduce your stress rather than just saying, I'll go for a walk with the dog or go and do some meditation. My experience of Natalie, and I, I'm saying this with some bias because, you know, a real vested interest in, in her success and her career. She's without doubt one of the best teachers I've come across. She's she's fantastic. She She's very, very reflective. She's got a wonderful, wonderful relationship with the students I hope, you know, as, as you've seen, she, she's very, very articulate and she's she's a very, very intelligent young woman who, who knows exactly, you know, what she wants and she's certainly wise before her time. And I certainly I certainly do hope that, you know, we can do what we can to, to make Natalie a, a school leader for the future because she, she certainly is one. So we'll start with a fun topic. I'll get started and so, Ketchup, fridge or cupboard? Fridge. Fridge, but I don't like ketchup. I'm more of a mayo person. Right, I get through 16 
cups of coffee a day. So, tea or coffee? Coffee, all the way. I'm going to say tea, but a coffee in the morning for the buzz. Top artist on your Spotify account? This is really sad. The Hamilton musical. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, Abby, Dan's all over that. So, Abby <laughs> bought a diary and she put it on Twitter and I, I texted her and said, Abby, I've just bought it. I, I, mine's just out of reach. It's just in my, my school bag. So, Abby, I'm, I'm going to extend this question. And I know it's impossible because it is, without doubt, the, the, the best musical that's ever, ever been written. Ever. What's your favourite song from Hamilton? Oh, I can't choose. Um, OK, I'm really cliche and just say Alexander Hamilton. I just, it gives me all the feels. My favourite at the moment is Washington on your side. I, I, I just good. love Jefferson and Madison and, and when they, they rap and, and do that bit. Dan, you get more Alan Partridge. The more I get to know, <laughs> you get more and more Alan Partridge, mate. Oh. Nat Natalie, Spotify. Oh, I would say, I, I, was, I was thinking about this and I was thinking, oh, I've got quite a lot of younger, younger artists, like rappers, I, I quite like a lot of rap music, but I'm saying a staple for when you're cleaning the house, sort of an all-time, it was her birthday yesterday, I'm going to say Celine Dion. Yeah, I was meant to go and see her in concert this year, but that got cancelled. I'm hopefully seeing Hamilton in June, but we will see. Right, on to, uh, we've got to get off this musicals. So on to a proper question. When pubs reopen, what are you ordering, Abby? It's got to be a white wine. Sauvignon. I'm going to say it depends. I'm going to say vodka soda lime or if it's sunny, a Copperberg or potentially if it's a, if I'm in the mood, maybe a double di Serrano Diet Coke. We did. We did uh, a few weeks ago. We did teaching uh, room 101. I stuck, I, I, I hate, uh, Joined up thinking, that was my, hate that term, joined up thinking, because it basically means nobody talks to each other. So if you, one thing from teaching, what would you consign to teaching Room 101? So much, I would put in Room 101. Do you know, I'm just, I'm going to put the differentiated worksheets in because they really get my goat. It's so, like she said, it's so hard to pick one, but I'm going to say, a traffic light system to assess understanding because boys typically are overconfident and overestimate how good they are and girls typically underestimate how good they are. So it's a load of absolute tosh. Thanks for that. I thought we were going to have to edit out some swearing there. Yeah. <laughs> right, so Abby and Natalie, it's now simply a yes or a no. Natalie, there's no caveats. You, you've caveated a few of your answers um, in, the, in the previous uh, set of questions. No caveats, yes or no. And you've got about a second to answer it. I really want you to, to fire these out. Yeah, about a second. Yeah, we won't hold you to it. Just literally. For a second. <laughs> Abby, we'll start again with you, and then same question to Natalie. Vertical tutoring. No. Natalie. No. Nope. Black trainers. As no. Part of, as part of school uniform. No. Trees no. on your classroom ceiling. No. Yeah. Especially ones that set the fire alarm off. Isolation booths. Yes. Yes. Word searches. No. No. Two-week timetables. Yes. Yes. And final one. No excuses behaviour policies. Yes. 
And that concludes a very exciting and detailed and interesting uh, episode A of More Than A Job podcast on Anchor FM. Abby Bayford, we thank you so much for giving up your time tonight in such an important role. Thanks for joining us. We hope it's the first of many, actually, Abby. Would you, would you please come back and join us again? We'd love to see you or love to hear you. Always. Maybe we could do it at the pub next time. Definitely. Definitely. Over, over all those drinks that, that you chose. And Natalie, we wish you the best of luck in your career. It sounds like you're going places in your career and it's only just starting off, but, but you've been really interesting. Obviously, you've done a lot of research in a short time as a teacher. So, so well done with that. And thank you for joining us. And hopefully we'll hear, hear from you in your future as well. Oh, thank you for having me, guys. My first podcast, but I've absolutely loved it. You're a, you've been a great host, Mike, and lovely people to speak to. So thank you very much for having me. So that was episode eight in coming up. Dan, do you want to tell us a little bit about who's coming up in our future episodes? Because we've got some interesting guests as well, haven't we? Oh, yeah. Well, this is just the start of um, the start of a fantastic lineup. You know, we've been really privileged to have Abby and Natalie with us tonight. We have got Jonathan Gullis coming up, who is MP for for Stoke, one of the Stoke areas um, on the Education Select Committee. We've got Edward Timpson, CBE MP, former Children's Minister, uh, now MP for Eddesbury, who's going to come on to talk about the Timpson Review on Exclusions. And he's currently doing a parliamentary report on PE and sport in schools. We've got Jess Phillips, uh, MP, uh, MP Birmingham Yardley, I believe, coming on soon. We have also got Hannah Wilson, founder of Women Ed and Diverse Ed, coming on and just waiting for him to confirm some dates. Tom Bennett is going to be joining us as well to discuss his, uh, his, his book. So we've got you know, plenty, plenty to be going on with, uh, which is you know, testament to all these wonderful educators out there that we can get these messages across and, and hopefully continue to share practice. I'm, I'm not sure that they're going to be our guests tonight because that, that was a, that's a pretty good podcast. Dan, you're going to struggle like you with the editing tonight. I know you are because there's so much good stuff being mentioned. And, uh, our best you know, yeah, I think, I think, I think we're getting better and better out with our guests and, and, you know, it's getting harder and harder to, to do the editing. So, so thanks to Abby and Natalie, we will definitely hear from Abby and Natalie again, I'm sure in the future. But we will be back next week with another podcast. Listen to us on uh, Anchor FM and you can catch us on Twitter. Thanks for listening. Take care and we'll speak to you all next week.